0: This is Cantus Firmus, Kingdom Theology for Christians Without a Country. With ego, yo. Greetings who are man, watching you and little, or listening to I'm Cantus saying, Firmus. Babe, I'm pleased but to but be speaking so with Alex job, Bernardo from the I'm Protestant saying, Libertarian Podcast me, today. He's also a colleague at the Libertarian Christian Institute. Oh, those words sounded really fancy, didn't they, Alex?
1: Oh, they did, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so Alex has had me on his show a few times, uh, and I'm pleased to have him on my show, and I put him under the hotlights for a little bit. Uh, Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing
1: great, man. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me today.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really, really fun to have you. We, and actually, we got to meet briefly because you're not too far from me. Uh, you live in yeah. Northern Kentucky, and I live in Southern Ohio, so we were able to <laughs> make that work. Yeah, that's um, great. Just, yeah, that's
1: really cool. It's not. It's, it's it, always nice to meet people that you only know on the internet in real life.
0: <laughs> it is. It's it's a little surreal, but it is it is really cool when you get to do it. Yeah, it is. So, so um so you know alex you're you're a you know podcasting superhero by night, but by day you teach medieval history to is it middle school kids
1: yep uh, seventh grade social studies teachers, and we cover the global middle ages in Kentucky That's really interesting because I felt
0: like when i was in um, when I was in middle school and high school, I don't remember a lot of discussion of European history.
1: Yeah. So they actually changed the standards a couple of years ago. So it used to be that you would have in sixth grade geography, and then in seventh grade, you would do the ancient world. And then, uh, well, you do the ancient world and the middle ages. So you had to compress all of that into one year. And then in eighth grade, you do early American history. And in within the last four years, since I started teaching, they changed the curriculum in most states to where sixth grade is the ancient world. Seventh grade is the middle ages. And then eighth Mm. grade is early American history, which makes a lot more sense academically. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that they did that because we can spend a lot more time diving into some of the bigger issues instead of having like a month to cover the entire european middle ages which is just impossible to do
0: yeah yeah and i mean maybe we covered it a little bit but i like i just feel like my recollection is we're like okay ancient history and then nothing happened for a few thousand years (laughs) and then america yes um (laughs) but um anyway um so that's cool that they're, they're focusing on it more
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, your experience is the exact same that I had, too. um, I knew very little about the Middle Ages outside of the Reformation because I was lucky enough to be raised in a Lutheran church. So we focused on that quite a bit. And I did have a very good world civ teacher in high school who covered a lot of these ideas in more detail. But there just wasn't the emphasis on it that there is now. And so I'm happy that we have an opportunity to actually dive into it because the Middle Ages is really like if you want to understand the link between the modern world that we live in and antiquity that runs straight through the Middle Ages. It's not just a time where everything sucked and it was dark a lot happened there that shaped the world that we live in today
0: yeah yeah well and and, and that's that's kind of what we're, what I want to talk about today is, is that that connection between the two things um, so and in, in maybe to kind of give a little bit of background about the the, the questions I'm going to be asking um, you, you know you and I have been talking you know on air and, and off a little bit about Christian nationalism lately and I wanted to get more into the sort of historical background of this issue to kind of give it a context. Um, because I, I feel like evangelicals especially sort of have this tendency to, uh, not think about history very much. We, we sort of think in terms of the now, mm-hmm. um, and, um, that, that can be very unhelpful. Uh, so, um, you know, so, so as you and I both know, nothing like, um, you know, Christian nationalism was on the table in the first 300 years or so of the early church. That was that wasn't the way they thought about it. Right. Um, that, that sort of changed with Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that Christian nationalism came into existence in, in, in 380, because that's kind of a modern phenomenon, but some of, some of what it's teaching, some of its ideas, uh, do resonate, uh, with the medieval church. Right. Yeah. So, um, but, but over time, church and state kind of did this little dance of vying for power over one another, uh, especially in the West, the East was a little bit different, um, while also being kind of largely integrated. So church and state were, you know, integrated, but also, um, buying, actually it's, it's, a bit like, um, um, separation of powers in, in the United States, right. Where you have the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judicial branch, and technically they're all working together, but they're also kind of working against each other. Yes. <laughs> as, they, as They try to you know protect their prerogatives except for Congress, which is pretty much given up the game.
1: <laughs> right. Um, yes. <laughs>
0: so, um, um, so anyway, so yeah. Um, Then you have this what happens in the Enlightenment kind of at the end of the uh, kind of medieval period um, where um, something comes into existence that we call, um, you know, the liberal tradition. And um, at that point, we have this the sense that church and state maybe should be separate to some extent. Maybe we should have more freedom of religion, Um, you know, Locke. Uh, was john locke was one of the philosophers who flirted with this idea yeah although he didn't get all the way to where we are today he sort of said well maybe we shouldn't trust atheists because they don't fear final judgment uh, (laughs) so they can't be good citizens and uh, catholics can't be good citizens either because they follow a foreign prince in rome but he still got us most of the way there yes um and so yeah so um I think you and I think of this, this, this rise of the liberal tradition, um, free speech and freedom of religion and, uh, free markets is a good thing. Um, but we're seeing more and more of these, um, kind of, um, right-wing religious, um, uh, ideologies that are, are questioning whether it was such a good thing. They want to sort of go backwards. Um, and so, um, What you, you know, you have is, for example, the Christian nationalists who are kind of more evangelical. You have uh, these uh, Catholic, what are called integralists who want to integrate church and state again. Uh, Although they also call themselves post-liberal integralists, which means that they're saying, okay, the liberalism didn't work. We're going to go back (laughs) to the other thing, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, So, um, yeah, so that's kind of the broad stroke story of how we got here, But, but, but I'd like to dive a little bit deeper, especially into that medieval period. So, Maybe um, we can start by, by me asking what church and state relations actually did look like in Western Europe in particular.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question. And I think in order to frame this conversation, we have to understand that the separation between the category that we call religion and the category that we call politics didn't really exist until the Enlightenment. So obviously, people made a distinction between what happened in the temples or during the Middle Ages, what happened in the cathedrals, and then what happened at the state level with government officials. But they would necessarily see what the state did in a religious context, and they would necessarily see uh, the church or in the ancient world, the temple as serving a political function. So that distinction between church and state that is very important to us in the modern world just did not exist until the Enlightenment. So I think that's really important to understand. Yeah. And so, one of the... Oh, go ahead. I was, was going to say that, that, you know, today we talk about civic
0: religion, um, you know, because we see them as different, right? You know, you know there, there's, there's a church and there's a state. And so when we start to think in terms of like kind of a God bless America mentality, we call that like, Oh, that's civic religion. And, and, but, but yeah, for, for, for most people who've ever existed throughout time, you didn't distinguish those two things. A religion was always civic.
1: Right, you would just call that Except we in the early church. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. And, and that's one, one thing. If I could recommend a book to your listeners, Brent Nongbri is a scholar, I believe, from Yale. And he wrote a book about seven or eight years ago called Before Religion. And he tracks the rise of the modern concept of religion, one of the most important books I've ever read. And the point that he makes bringing together a lot of scholarship that had raised these questions but never fully answered them was that that concept of religion, as we understand it did, does not emerge until the modern world. And it's very important to keep in mind when we project that back into antiquity. antiquity. Antiquity, and that's one of the things I think that makes the earliest church stand out is that they really were, at least for the first 300 years, um, completely uninvolved in politics. They just felt like the gospel message that they were preaching went beyond the political systems of the day. And if we want to understand the relationship between, you know, the the so-called church and the so-called state in the Middle Ages, we have to go back to the year 285 with a Roman emperor named Diocletian. And throughout the third Roman century, there were all kinds of problems. Uh, There had been emperor after emperor. They had devalued the currency. There was all kinds of divisions among the Roman people. And Diocletian, when he became the emperor in 285, set out to try to repair a lot of those problems. And so he felt like there were two things that needed to be solved. Number one, you have to honor the gods, because in the ancient mind, the only way that your civilization could possibly function is if you were offering the gods the proper sacrifices and making sure you were honoring them. And then the other thing that he tried to do is he needed to unite the Roman people around a common goal. And that is really the function of religion. What we call religion today kind of anachronistically in antiquity is that that was supposed to be the mechanism by which the state derived its power. And so, what Diocletian does is in two eighty five is he's going to persecute Christians because he believed that it was this this new faith that was spreading throughout the Roman Empire and gaining a lot of momentum that was compromising the values of the Roman gods, and he believed that it was creating division. So Diocletian set out to persecute the Romans, but or the persecute the Christians rather. But then he also realized that the Roman Empire was just way too big for one person to be in charge of. So he divides the Roman Empire up into East and West, and so he's going to establish a new kind of capital city at an old Greek city called Byzantium, which will later be renamed Constantinople under the intro Emperor Constantine, while the West would be ruled out of Rome. And that kind of sets the stage for the rest of the Middle Ages. And so we have just, uh, just about 40 years after that, uh, Constantine becomes I think in 312 the sole emperor of the Roman Empire again, but he's going to move his capital exclusively to Byzantium. So there's still going to be some power in Rome, but it's it's uh, it's this new city, and he's going to rename Byzantium Constantinople, that will become the seat of Roman power throughout the Middle Ages, but what Constantine does with Christianity is almost the exact same thing that Diocletian does with the pagan gods. He believes that maybe one of the reasons why the Roman Empire is in such a bad shape is because there is this Christian god out there that's not been giving his proper respect because the Roman emperors have been persecuting them, and so he seeks to worship uh, the Christian god along with other gods, and he also felt that Christianity could be a very powerful unifying factor. And so that's why he calls the Council of Nicaea to try to settle a lot of the theological disputes and bring together all of the people of the Roman Empire that had these different beliefs. And as time goes on, uh, the Eastern Roman Empire is going to become more powerful and all of the learning and scholarship that was once seated in the West is going to move to the East and the Western Roman Empire is going to become less and less powerful. So in the year 476, the last uh, emperor of Rome is deposed and replaced with somebody who just calls themselves the king of Italy. And so in 476, the Western Roman Empire is gone. Now, the Roman Empire survives in the east, and we call that a little bit anachronistically as well the Byzantine Empire. But in the west, there's no more unifying central government. So the only thing that all of these different people throughout what was formerly the Western Roman Empire have in common is their belief in the Catholic Church. So it was set up almost from the beginning that the church was going to wind up having a prominent amount of political power because there was just no other unifying organization or institution in Western Europe. These people had different languages, they had different cultures, they had different customs, they fought about everything, but they all more or less agreed on the authority of the Catholic Church. And then, of course, you have in uh, the year 800, the accession of Charlemagne, and Pope Leo III decides that he is going to crown Charlemagne, who was the most powerful king in Europe at that time, the new Holy Roman Emperor. Now, part of this was because Leo III was in some political trouble, and he wanted he wanted a, the most powerful king to be on his side to kind of help him out. But then he was also trying to reignite the Roman Empire with the Catholic Church deliberately at the head of that so it was no uh, it was no um, it was no coincidence that Leo crowned Charlemagne the King so that's a huge step forward and so from then on you have the at least theoretically this Holy Roman Empire that was ruled by an emperor and you had the Roman Catholic Church and the theory behind that is that the Empire would actually be submissive to the church so the church holds the uh, the the levers of political power and even though people would realize that there are two separate the, like the papacy and the uh, emperorship were two separate functions just like with the ancient worship of the gods like those two needed each other they weren't categorically separated and so throughout the rest of the Middle Ages it kind of becomes this uh, it kind of becomes this competition to see which domain whether it's the Pope or whether it's the Holy Roman Emperor and the other kings can control more of the political functions throughout Europe and for a time there especially with Pope Gregory the seventh in the 11th century the Pope is the de facto emperor of Europe for a long time the Pope is the most powerful person person in Europe, and everyone has to bow down to the whims of the Pope. But over time, there will be all of these political changes that take place in Europe, We might want to talk about in a couple of minutes, that will lead to kings and uh, the Holy Roman emperors, but then also like kings throughout Europe, wanting to cede more power. And that takes that political power away from the Catholic Church. And that will ultimately result in the Renaissance and the Reformation, and all of the other events that uh, transitioned us into the modern era.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a great summary. So, um, a couple of things come to my mind as I listen to that, that, um, the idea that we have to keep church and state together, um, there, there becomes a more secular explanation for that over time. Um, cause some people start to say a lot of in political philosophers start to say, well, you can't have a unified people with different religions. And so that, that explanation is a little bit more about how do you sort of keep society together? Um, but the, that old explanation about, well, you know, um, Rome is failing because the gods are mad at us because we're not giving them the proper due. Um, that feels s- eerily similar to the sort of arguments that you hear a lot of Christian nationalists make, right? Yes, that, it does. Yeah. <laughs> god's not on our side because, you know, we're not stoning the gay people. Right. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's a little bit crude, but um, so, um, but the other thing that comes to mind is the role of centralization in this. So, um, you know, the Pope is this important figurehead in the West. And as, as you said, as the Roman Empire moves east, the Pope becomes um, not just somebody that you look to for spiritual guidance, but just someone who gets who people sort of rally around in general. Um, the Eastern Church, of, of course, is more um, uh, diffuse, I guess. The, the power is spread out a lot more. There's different centers and, and in the Eastern Church, you know, the, the term that I've sort of heard used is Caesaropapism, yeah, which is that the king of every territory sort of functions as almost like it's religious authority, right? And so you don't have the same kind of uh, conflict because the, the person who's, who, who, who uh, controls the armies also holds the re- religious authority, religious power. Um, but um, just looking a little bit, I mean, it seems that the... You know, in my reading of, of kind of Western history, there are a lot of kings that want to be out from under the authority of the pope. And I think the Protestant Reformation gives them an out because now they they're, yes. they're, they're, they can sort of say, oh, well, of course, I'm still religious. Of course, I'm still Christian. But I just, you know, I I just have a a, a, a moral conflict. I, I have a crisis of conscience where I just can't follow this pope guy anymore. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but um, a certain examples sort of come to mind, though, of, of these kind of... Uh, complicated church state relations. And it, it, it st- st- stood out to me that um, three major figures that come to my mind are, are all archbishops of Canterbury. So there's, there was Dunstan, the archbishop of Canterbury in the 900s, um, who uh, he fought against simony and nepotism in the church. Um, but he also criticized the king for seizing power by violence. Um, and then you have Thomas Beckett, of course. Who there's that, there's that great film with um, uh, Peter O'Toole and um, uh, Richard Burton ab- about the, that sort of story where uh, uh, the king um, was it Henry III, maybe? Um, the Archbishop of Canterbury dies. He'd been somebody who was creating con- you know problems for the king, so the king appoints his own uh, archbishop, who's this, like a buddy of his, you know, somebody <laughs> who he just you know just sort of went around chasing girls with and whatever and drinking. And then this buddy actually becomes like he has he has his own like kind of uh, religious conversion experience and then uh, ends up fighting against uh, the king's sort of encroachments on the church. Um, And so there's all these just kind of really interesting, interesting stories like that about uh, just the sort of church and state kind of fighting each other over. So, like you said, there's not a sense that church and state are separate. Because it's just really a question of who gets to hold more power, which, which institution, yeah. right?
1: Right, and um, and again, the the church the church believes that it needs the power of the government, and these governmental leaders believe that they need the power of the church. So it's a symbiotic relationship. The question is right. who's in control of what? Right, gotcha. <clears throat> so,
0: um, yeah, I, I was going to say it, it, it's a bit like a um, it's a bit like a marriage where it's like okay, well, it's it's all one marriage. Uh, but, but, but who, but who, who makes the decisions, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's actually a great. That's actually a great analogy for it. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. So um, yeah. So I, as I mentioned, my understanding was that Eastern Europe worked a little different. It was Cesar of Papism is, is that, but, but Eastern history doesn't get discussed as much. Um, is, is that your kind of understanding about the dynamic there? Do you see as much uh, complexity there as you see in the West?
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So Caesaropapism is the idea that the emperor of the East is also essentially the pope. So instead of in the West you have the Holy Roman Emperor and you have the pope and those are two separate offices, if you are the emperor of the Byzantine Empire then you're also the de facto head of the church. So in some ways it's a more streamlined process because there's no competition between the, you know, kind of the civic and the theological authorities because all of that power resides in one person, but it creates a lot more political intrigue because if you become the emperor then you're also in charge of the church. And so if you read, and it's uh, Byzantine history is unfortunately uh, something that we just don't learn enough about, because that really is, they, they are the heirs of the Roman Empire, and they play such an important role in the development of world history during the Middle Ages. Uh, but we completely ignore them in church. There's a really, and I'm going to recommend another really good book to your audience. It's called Lost to the West, which tells you a lot about uh, the Byzantine Empire, but it's a history of the Byzantine Empire. And they go into all of these different imperial intrigues. And the point, one of the, one of the main themes of that book is that because so much power resided in the hands of one person, both theologically and politically in the East, this created a situation where there were all kinds of opportunists. And so you have assassination after assassination, and it led to all of this political instability. And there are very few times throughout Byzantine history where there's enough political stability for them to fight off the biggest encroaching threat during the Middle Ages, which was the Muslim empires of the East. Um, and so it does create a lot of political tension and political conflict. And but that's the biggest difference between the East. In the West, is it in the the East? All of that power resides in the hand uh, hands of one person. Whereas in the West, there was at least a formal split, which is going to eventually lead to, I think, the Enlightenment and the liberal system that we have today of separation of church and state. Great, good, good summary.
0: Yeah, and I'll add that. Uh, Lost to the West is it uh, Lars Brownsworth?
1: Yes, excellent book. Excellent book. Yeah, I'll
0: add it to most. It's only uh, it's like ten bucks on Kindle and like thirteen bucks on Audible. So yeah, yeah. Good, good one to grab. All right. Um, so, um, you know, we often hear about the sort of dichotomy between secular opponents of the church who are wise, liberal and scientific and the church, which was, you know, which is ignorant and authoritarian. And, uh, you know, that story, um, we kind of retroactively in a lot of cases sort of put onto, um, the middle ages and, and, uh, largely because of, um, a, you know, the rise of, um, enlightenment secularism I guess and so they yeah. sort of create the, create these stories about um, you know Columbus didn't know the world was round and uh, and, and, and uh, Galileo which we'll get to as well that that's that, that sort of um, described and, and, and told in a, in a, a way to um, craft a certain narrative right and that narrative is essentially that uh, we the modern secular people are very smart and religious people are very stupid yes um, and also we're the underdogs. And, um, you know, so, so, you know, we, the, the secular person becomes very heroic and the religious person is, is seen as, um, you know, power hungry and, and evil and, and, and stupid. So, um, the, um, I, I guess, you know, the, the enlightenment and the scientific revolution because of this are seen as movements against religion. So, um, We'll kind of move forward a little bit, but maybe starting kind of in the, in the first part of the Middle Ages there, um, I wanted to just kind of hear your thoughts on just kind of the role of not only you know, Catholic monasteries, but also the role of Islam as well in preserving ancient wisdom and philosophy in that early period.
1: Yes. So during the so-called Dark Ages, the reason why the Middle Ages got the term the Dark Ages is because at least for the early part of it, there was not a lot of literature produced in the West. So that's the reason why we call it the Dark Ages. Uh, It's not because I mean, it was a pretty terrible time for people living in Western Europe. Western Europe became a backwater, but there just wasn't a lot of literary and cultural production. The reason for that is that with the end of the Roman Empire, uh, that definitely increased the gap between the rich and the poor, the gap between the educated and the illiterate. And so you had a very small number of people in the West, and these were usually clergymen or lawyers that knew how to read and write. And these were the only people that were responsible for reproducing the works of ancient Greece and Rome. And so the average person in Europe during the Middle Ages was going to be very illiterate, and they wouldn't have much use for any of that knowledge anyways. So with this transition of power that happened after Constantine uh, within the Roman Empire, moving all of these Classics and all of this learning to the East. It's really the Byzantine Empire that preserves a lot of that Greek and Roman learning during the Middle Ages. But the Byzantine Empire, because of a lot of the political problems that we discussed before, uh, all, was in a constant position of burning itself. They fight these giant wars and they'd have these great successes, but they could never have uh, solid political stability. And the Byzantine Empire is really on the rise at the same time as the Muslim Empire. So you have Muhammad who dies in the year uh, three, um, I'm sorry, who dies in the year six thirty and then Abu Bakr, one of his relatives in 634, unites the people of Arabia. They leave the Arabian Peninsula and they begin conquering all of this Byzantine and Persian territory because the Byzantines and the Persians have been at war for hundreds of years and kind of burned themselves out. So it's very easy for them to conquer all this territory because the Byzantines and the Persians did not have the resources to fight back. So what the Muslims do is as they conquer all of this Byzantine territory, they come into contact with all of these texts from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And so the the uh, the Arab empires of the Middle Ages actually go through what's called the uh, Islamic Renaissance. So during the European Dark Ages, the Muslim world is kind of at the peak of human learning because they're continuing to learn and develop from all of these ancient Greek and Roman texts. And so throughout much of the Middle Ages, really until the Renaissance, we're going to see this dichotomy where Greek and learning is kept alive in Europe, but it's really only in the monasteries uh, and among the clergy and among the lawyer class where very few people have access to that otherwise. Whereas in the east and The Byzantine Empire and then former Byzantine, now Arab Muslim territories. They're going to continue to develop all of these ideas from antiquity. So there's this big division between that. But really, if it wasn't for the monasteries and it wasn't for the Muslims, there's a very good chance that antiquity might have been extinguished. At least we would not have the access to information that we did today, uh, and that would have made a complete difference in terms of world history. What really set the stage for this, ironically enough, was the Crusades, because you had all of these people from the West that had never. Come into contact with Muslim civilization before going over to the Middle East, and yes, they fought and it was bloody, and there was a lot of stuff going on with the Crusades. But they began bringing back some of these Muslim ideas, and the the thought from a lot of people that survived the Crusades was, "Hey," and so in a lot of ways, they kind of have it better off in the Middle East than we have it over here in Europe. And then the Italians realized that instead of trying to fight the Muslims, if they traded with them, they can make massive profits off that because the Muslims had access, easier access to the Silk Road and all of the goods that were from faraway China. And so what the Italians did is they began to trade with these Muslim traders in the East. And so you have states like Florence and like um, Venice and all of those Italian city states that made a killing off of trading with the Muslims. But not only did they bring goods back with them, things like spices and silk and all of that stuff, they began to bring back these classical texts. And as these cities became more and more wealthy, fewer people were needed to farm and perform those kinds of functions. More people became educated, more people started reading and writing the ancient Greek Roman classics. And that led ultimately to the Renaissance and the, you know, quote unquote rediscovery of the Greco Roman world during that time.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. As we talk about the Western tradition, um, and, and, and first of all, I mean, you know, you know, <laughs> we started in Greece, which is kind of more in the East, <laughs> right? Um, yes. And, um, but then, you know, um, yeah, but, but as you pointed out, that Western tradition that we value so much largely starts in the East and then it's preserved by Islam, <laughs> by the East, and then by sort of a small number of, of, of you know, monks and lawyers in the West um, yeah. until until the West is ready to take it back, I guess. Right. Not, yes. Anyway. Um, yeah. That, 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 that's that's sort of fascinating as well to think about. Um,
1: yeah.
0: And, and you know, when we talk about the liberal tradition, it does emerge largely in the West, although you can find pieces of it all over the world. Um, there's um, uh, an interesting uh podcast, which, oh gosh, the name of it, I, I've forgotten. I want to say it's, um, it might be an Acton Institute podcast, but it, it, it's like kind of maybe called Voices of Liberty or something like that. And, and they, they uh, do these interesting biographical sketches. Um, if I, I'll have to look it up and put it in the show notes because I probably, I probably named it wrong. But there's, there's a lot of really interesting stories about just kind of these, these little pockets where you'll have like a philosopher in Africa or China somewhere who basically seizes on this, what we call the Western liberal tradition you know, completely apart from the West. Yeah. And sometimes before we even seize on it. Yeah. Um, but okay. So that's, you know, kind of the first part of the middle ages there, but we, we move forward, uh, into the, the latter part there. Uh, and we, you know, we hear today about the controversy between Galileo and the church. And it's another one of those stories that atheists tell themselves, uh, to, to remind themselves how smart they are. Uh, and, um, so th- this conflict between Galileo and the church is supposed to be this this really important example of religious censorship of science. Um, but but is that a, a fair or a complete way to characterize the dispute? And maybe just going out from that, how do Christians factor into scientific study in the late medieval medieval period in general?
1: Yeah, I I think that it's a lot more complicated than that, and you really do have to go back to the Renaissance. So up until really the 1300s, the Catholic Church was still the most powerful institution in Europe, and Europe was still kind of an economic backwater. And so one of the advantages that, that the Catholic Church had, or one of the advantages that the Catholic Church had, was its ability to impose the tithe. So the Catholic Church collected massive amounts of money from the peoples throughout Europe, and they could give that money to kings that backed them and take it away from kings that didn't. So the Catholic Church, because of the economic dislocations throughout Europe, had this massive economic power, but we start to see with the Renaissance that these Italian city-states like Florence and families like the Medicis made a killing off of trade with the East. So their economic dependency on Rome was actually very limited. In a lot of ways, the Catholic Church uh, needed the financial support of families like the Medicis, which gave them a ton of power over the politics in Italy and over the politics of the papacy and the Catholic Church hierarchy. And so we can see just because of the growth of the economy throughout Europe, as Europe becomes. Um, less and less based on kind of this quasi-feudal system and more and more based on trade and commerce. There's just less need for the financial support of the Catholic Church. And because of that, the Catholic Church begins to lose power. And it's not as if all of these kings and leaders throughout Europe decide that they're going to abandon their Catholic faith. They just don't want the Pope be getting involved in their local political affairs. They want to be able to run things the way that they want to run them within their own kingdoms. And so this is going to lead to the rise of nationalism and then ultimately like the Protestant Reformation, which is tied into all of these Economic and political developments that were taking place in Europe during that time. It wasn't just about theology. It was about a lot more than that as well. So when you get to the Scientific Revolution, you already have the Protestant Reformation, which was really a very large hit to Catholic power and the Western uh, and the Western world because it gave people the permission to say no to Rome and the dictates of Rome. And the the argument of the Reformers is, is that the Catholic Church uh, hierarchy, it's not necessarily even the Catholic Church itself, but the Catholic Church hierarchy, they had their opportunity. They were unfaithful. They're corrupt, and we should go back to the Bible, and we should only try to put into practice the things that we find in the Bible. That needs to be our ultimate source of authority because the Catholic Church is so corrupt. And this is not only a massive hit to the Church's theological power, it's a massive hit to their political power as well. So with the scientific revolution, you have figures like Copernicus and Galileo and Newton, who's the most important. They're all deeply devout Christians, and Galileo was a devoted Catholic. He was dedicated to the Church for his entire life, but the Catholic Church saw this as is just another threat to their power, right? So it wasn't just about ideas. As if they're worried that Galileo's, you know, Galileo being able to prove mathematically that the Earth revolved around the Sun was somehow a threat to their, um, their, their Church teachings or whatever. It was more an attempt to hold on to what little political power they had left because they realized that they were starting to lose that political prominence in favor of these kings and queens. And the Scientific Revolution was another step down that road. For the atheists, though, that think that the Scientific Revolution was some sort of, was some sort of, I guess, victory for enlightenment skepticism, that's just not the case. I mean, Isaac Newton, who is probably the most important scientist in human history, he was the one that was able to mathematically determine uh, that the earth revolved around the sun. And he led to the theory of gravity and really unlocked the key to all subsequent science. He was a deep theological thinker. And there's another great book I'm going to recommend called The Clockwork Universe. I think the guy that wrote it, his name is Dolework, but it's about our Dole Wick. But um, it's about uh, Isaac Newton and then the English Royal Society. And one of the points he makes in that book is is that Isaac Newton actually writes more theology than he does science. And the driving force behind a lot of the thought processes of people like Francis Bacon and Galileo and Kepler and Newton was that they all believed that God created the world, therefore the world must be ordered. So there was some sort of order to the universe that was inherent in the universe because it was created by an, an omniscient God. And so... Isaac Newton's quest as kind of the culmination of the scientific revolution was really an attempt to try to understand the intrinsic logic that God had put into creation. So if it wasn't for their Christian faith and their Christian background, then I don't think that they would have had that assumption about the the orderliness of the universe that led to the discovery of natural law and all subsequent scientific achievements. So again, this very uh, reductionistic and I think anachronistic way of seeing science as being anti religious is, is just not the case. It might have been built by that, by certain people of the Catholic Church. And certainly, when we get into the Enlightenment, there are, are some ways that that changes intellectually. But the, the Catholic Church's response to the scientific revolution was more political than it was theological. And that's the reason why a lot of these scientists moved into Protestant areas of Europe, like England, because the Protestants were a lot more accepting of those kinds of scientific theories than the Catholic Church was, because the Catholic Church was more concerned about maintaining that political power that. was slowly eluding its grasp
0: yeah and i'll recommend another book as well of james hannum's book the genesis of science how the christian middle ages launched the scientific revolution um which is also really interesting for i think especially discussing that um theological philosophical framework that underpinned the scientific revolution that you spoke of um this idea that there's a uh, you know we're, we're essentially trying to um think god's thoughts after him that there's that because there's a, a God who made this orderly universe, because it comes from a, a complex and, or, or well, a, a very sophisticated mind um, that um, there's, there's, it's actually a, first of all, it's going to make sense, but also that uh, scientific pursuits are actually spiritual pursuits. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would be, it would be fun to, to, to spend a little bit of time talking about how, um how w- once that idea becomes less, uh, less significant in science, w- why science is still done. Uh, right. But, that, that Save that for another time. Um, so, okay, so the Protestant Reformation takes place in the 16th century, mm-hmm. and it largely takes for granted the Catholic mindset of church and state integration. Yeah. Um, the Anabaptists are one exception because they see the state and its violence as inherently corrupting to the church. Um, are there other examples that, that come to, to mind for you of kind of pre-Enlightenment Christians who question the value of this integration or, or is it pretty much something that we're not really, we don't really see any uh, any uh, dissent from?
1: So there have always been Christ- like separatist Christian groups a lot of them were pushed towards the east in the theological controversies at the end of antiquity and so for instance you have like groups of Arians and groups of Donatists um, Arians more so than the Donatists, but you have groups of Arians that lived in like Babylon for a long time and they lived there throughout the Persian rule, throughout the Islamic rule, throughout the Mongol rule and so you always had some of the Separatist groups, but within Europe, the defining political thinker of the European Middle Ages is Augustine, and really Augustine, I think, is probably the most important theologian um, before Martin Luther in Christian history. And he writes this book called *The Two Cities*, where he argues that um, we can divide the world up into these two different, like, so you have the, you have the, the city of God and you have the city of man, right? And if the city of man wants to flourish, then the city of man needs to submit to the city of God. So Augustine was not subtle about which one he believed ought to have the majority of power in the Middle Ages. And so throughout the Middle Ages, there was this idea that if you, again, and this goes back deep into antiquity, but it's this idea that if the cities of man are going to flourish and they have to submit to the cities of God, that's going to be consistent for all believers throughout Europe up until the Protestant Reformation. You're absolutely right in that the Protestant Reformation does not challenge ultimately the framework that the government needs to have to, theological, like the, the, the government needs to rely on theological authorities and vice versa. However, I think that there is a shift, especially in the thinking of Martin Luther and giving, um, giving civic powers a little bit more authority than the ecclesiological powers. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that Martin Luther was lucky enough to be born in the Holy Roman Empire at a time when uh, the Holy Roman Emperor was elected by the seven electors. So you had several, like seven um, main, well, they call them electors. They're like kings of different parts of the Holy Roman Empire that all reported to the Holy Roman Emperor. But whenever that uh, empire ship came into, uh, like, so when, when an emperor died, these seven electors got together and they had an election to decide who the next Holy Roman Emperor was going to be. And Martin Luther happened to be lucky enough to be born into um, a district that was ruled by an elector named Elector Frederick. And Elector Frederick had a lot of problems with the hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church. And really, it's Elector Frederick who protected Martin Luther and kept him from being killed by the Catholic Church after he was excommunicated at the Diet of Arms. So Martin Luther looks to people like Elector Frederick as being kind of his heroes, and he sees these political leaders as being able to push these Reformation ideas against the power of the Catholic Church. So really, the only shift that happens in European thinking because of the Reformation is that the Catholic Church is going to lose its power, and there's going to be a little bit more of an openness among Christians to give civil authorities more power than they might otherwise have. And then you're going to have a long series of wars between Catholics and Protestants that's going to culminate in the Treaty of Westphalia. People are going to begin criticizing and questioning whether the church should have even that much political power at all, and that's going to eventually result in the Enlightenment, which will take, the, well, at least theoretically, it will take the theological uh, support for politicians out of the political equation. At least that's the theory behind a lot of Enlightenment thinking.
0: Yeah, and it, it's interesting. I mean, I mean, even today, our assumption about um, political power when people use it against us is, oh, we just have to get it from them. Right. right. you know, There's not really this like, well, let's question the foundation here. Like, let's 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 question whether or not it's actually good to have a system that can be used and, and wielded, uh, you know, so destructively <laughs> against people on my side. And, and, and then I could take it and use it on the other side. Um, but, yeah, it, it's 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 interesting to me that, that 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 wasn't something that occurred to more people like, well, wait a second, maybe this is just a bad way of doing things.
1: Yeah. And if you're you're born into that world, I mean, for a lot of these people, they had no other way of conceptualizing the relationship between what we now call religion. and It just wasn't the way that those people thought. And I think that there's it's kind of like what you alluded to before. There's kind of this post-Enlightenment arrogance that, you know, because we figured out classical liberalism and have all these great scientific ideas. It was really dumb of them not to have that without realizing that the Enlightenment was the culmination of like 5000 years of human history, you know, trying to figure out a lot of these problems.
0: Well, yeah, y- yes, but, but, but it also happened quite rapidly. Yes, and and but, but yeah, you're, you're right that um, it just wasn't the way that, that we I mean that people thought about things. And, and I'll and I'll also add the fact that we still struggle with it suggests that it's also not the way that humans normally function. Yeah. I think that we I think that we take for granted a kind of um, you know violent winner take all approach to um, you know <laughs> a- approach to the world that we think that that's that's just the normal way to do yeah. things. Um, so yeah, yeah. But, um, so yeah, you know, I mean, you about Luther. I mean, yeah, Luther definitely gives more, more room for the state. And in my reading of Luther, I think he's almost, he's almost a little schizophrenic, um, where it's like, you know, um, you know, Solzhenitsyn said that the, the, the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man. Well, for Luther, the line between church and state runs through the heart of every man. As, right. as a Christian, I can't kill or murder or steal or whatever. But as a soldier, hey, sure, why not? Yeah. Um, and so, um, yes. Um, anyway. So, yeah. So the liberal tradition, um, which, you know, is largely seen as this movement to decentralize political power from kings and churches and to expand individual freedom, was this tradition um, in your reading a, a secular one or did theists and particularly Christians play a role in it?
1: I so there, there's, I'm, I'm going to recommend another book here. There's a lot of them. If you're, if, if anyone who's listening wants to like contact me, I'd be more than happy to like talk about the books that have been really influential to me because I've had to read a lot to be able to teach this in class. I, 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 I'll try to put the, the, the books in the show notes as well, per, by the way. Perfect. Perfect. I should be writing them down. Yeah. So there's a great book that came out about three years ago by a historian named Tom Holland and it's called Dominion. And it's about how all of the values in the Western world have been indelibly shaped by the Judeo-Christian tradition. And so Literally, it's like it, the, the the metaphor that he uses is we're like fish swimming in a fishbowl, and the water that's in the fishbowl is the Christian tradition. And so the way that like, like the fundamental presuppositions that all Western people have about the way that the world works have been shaped by Christianity, and the Enlightenment was no exception to that. And in a lot of ways, the Enlightenment was an attempt to put the scientific method into use to examine human behavior. So the scientific method was initially developed by Bacon to explain and explore phenomenon that took place in nature. With the Enlightenment, the scientific method is employed to try to explore how human beings operate and which political and social and theological systems create the most amount of human flourishing. And so we have early political philosophers like Machiavelli and then uh, Hobbes and then most importantly Locke trying to come up with these conclusions about politics based on their understanding of human nature. Now, for us libertarians that are a part of the classical liberal tradition, our tradition really goes back to John Locke. John Locke was another deeply devout Christian. You talked earlier in the episode about how that sometimes colored the way that he would understand his uh, view of government. But John Locke comes up with this idea that all human beings are essentially created equal because they're all endowed with the image of God by their creator. Therefore, we have to understand that human nature um, is valuable. And so human nature uh, being valuable, there are certain rights that we all possess simply by being created. And those are what he deemed natural rights. So those are lifeless liberty, and property. These are three things that are not given to us by government. They're things that we have all human beings have equally just by virtue of being created. And the Enlightenment is really an attempt to kind of explain and expand upon those basic ideas. And there are a lot of different ways that you can look at the Enlightenment, but it really is an attempt to try to understand which political and social systems lead to the most amount of human flourishing. Now, there are a lot of Enlightenment thinkers like De Holbach, like David Hume, and you could even put in like uh, H.S. Ramaris, who is the founder of modern biblical studies into this category, that were very critical of Christianity. But if you actually read a lot of the things that they have to say, they're more critical of the power of the church, and they're critical of the wars between the Catholics and the Protestants, and they're critical of the persecutions that took place within these new nations in Europe against those that had a different version of Christianity than those that were in power. It's not really like they were attacking Christianity as a philosophical whole. It was more about attacking the it was more about attacking the the political problems that were caused by Christian infighting. Now, they don't disaggregate between those. So for a lot of Enlightenment thinkers, they look at like the corruption in the Catholic Church and the wars between the Catholics and Protestants and say, well, this must be what the Bible teaches about Christianity. Therefore, we're going to undermine the value of the Bible like this. If this is what Christianity is about, then it's better to not be a Christian at all. That was a lot of their thinking on that issue. But again, like the ultimate values, like the fact that they could say that there's value in human life and that human life shouldn't be arbitrary arbitrarily sacrificed because the person in power happens to have a different set of theological beliefs than the person who's being sacrificed is a deeply Christian ideal. So even the the kind of anti-Christian response uh, to the Enlightenment, is a response that's only possible within a Christian philosophical and theological framework, if that makes sense. So to a certain extent, yes, the Enlightenment thinkers are very critical of Christianity and very critical of what was then becoming known for the first time as religion, this category that's separate from society and politics, but that critique of religion is all done within the framework of Christian presuppositions, and I think that's something that's often lost with these thinkings about the Enlightenment. Because we hear these critics like Hume, and uh, and I actually read from De Holbach in my seventh grade class because we try to I try to explain how this dynamic works to my students. But you read excerpts from people like this, and you say, "Man, they really hated Christianity." But the reason why they hate Christianity is because they have a bunch of Christian presuppositions about human nature. Well,
0: and in, and in, in my understanding too. I remember attending a. a, a a lecture on this once um is that the enlightenment um the enlightenment attitude toward religion also differed by region so like the german enlightenment was m- more pro-christian the french enlightenment was more anti-christian yes. and, and so but, but you do have um christians who are involved in this process it's not like it's only atheists who are doing it um or or or, or, or even um, deists, because that was you know a lot of people weren't really willing quite to go over all the way into atheism, but tried out, you know, deism or deism. Yeah. Um, okay. So we're, we're now on the other side of liberalism. (laughs) you know, we, we, we've, 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 um, kind of seen it happen. And by almost every measure, I'd say liberalism, uh, once again, we're talking about classical liberalism, this tradition of freedom, um, liber, which means free, um, has been wildly successful right it's so it's it's free market and anti-authoritarian mindset has led to the obliteration of extreme global poverty the expansion of life-saving medical technology uh, and and we now live in this era of decreasing violence and and decreasing poverty as well Um, so uh, conservative thinker Jonah goldberg has actually called the advent of liberalism the miracle because it's this thing that suddenly happened and everything changed like almost immediately when you think of it, the terms of human history. Right. And so, um, but with the miracle also made religious practice voluntary and, and because of that over time, maybe, maybe not because of it, but at least it's happened, um, over time, that's removed religion from the center of the public square. And so, you know, while I agree with, you know, you know, Christian nationalists or whatever, that America's loss of Christian beliefs and values has led to a kind of, I think, spiritual listlessness and frustration, some cultural issues. Um, I don't think that the answer to this problem is mandatory and thus ultimately false Christianity. Um, but, but Christian nationalists and Catholic integralists disagree that they, they often call themselves post-liberal. They say that liberalism has failed because the church no longer has political power to enforce its values on the nation. <laughs> And um, you know, so they'll they'll say things like, "Well, what do you want? Christian nationalism or drag queen story hour?" (laughs) Um, And you know, um, the the very fact that drag queens exist, and you know that parents in Portland might take their kid to 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 a public library to hear a drag queen read um, "Hop on Pop." Maybe that's a bad example. (laughs) Um, Is um, you know that 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 that, that, that's evidence that liberalism has failed? That it was a bad idea. So you know, on the one hand, drag queen story hour. On the other hand, religious freedom, uh, economic uh, growth, uh, the end of <laughs> extreme global poverty, and diseases that used to kill people—anyway. Uh, so, uh, you know, h- how do you weigh those two things? I don't know. Um, so, basically, with, with, in short, they're saying this project has failed. Liberalism is done for. It was a bad idea. Uh, w- w- you know, why are they wrong? Why is it actually in their best interest to live in a religiously free country?
1: Man, there's there's a lot. There's a lot of different paths that we could take to answer that question. I think I want to start philosophically because I think this is really important. So I think that the political philosophies that were developed during the Enlightenment were rock solid. And again, at, at heart, I'm a Lockean. I believe in some sort of civic government, but I believe that the government only exists to protect our natural rights to life, liberty, and property. And that is classical liberalism. That's the only role for government. And I think the founders of the United States, of course, John Locke and Montesquieu were the two most influential philosophers for the founders and the were a very diverse group of people, but one of the things that almost all of them had in common is that Locke and Montesquieu, who de- developed the idea of the separation of powers, were kind of like their intellectual heroes. And so the foundation for the United States of America, which a lot of people don't realize this, but the United States is really just the culmination of the Enlightenment. Like our country is like the beacon of Enlightenment political thought because it was founded on those political presuppositions. All of those go back to Locke and Montesquieu. And I think that that's really the foundation for liberalism. The problem with the Enlightenment is that it produced this mindset that we call modernity. And with the Enlightenment, you have this idea, not just that really modernity can be defined by, by by three factors, three ideas, three characteristics, and that's science, reason, and progress. And so there's this belief that if we use the scientific method, we can understand absolutely everything that's going on in nature. And if we use reason, we can understand absolutely every aspect of the human condition. And if we put these ideas together, this will naturally and necessarily lead to human progress, that we'll be able to make the world a better place. And for the thinkers of the Enlightenment, they believed in objective knowledge, that knowledge was out there, that we could discover it, and that one day human beings might be able to know all the secrets of the universe. And they believed in the kind of objective human reason, that human beings could possibly put all of their biases to one side and just know the truth. And then, of course, this led to this doctrine of progress, that things are going to get better and better, and one day we might be able to perfect nature and perfect humanity. Now, we know on the other side of the 20th century that that didn't stack up, but for a long time after the Enlightenment, that was kind of the predominant mood of people in the Western world. And so you have the rise of scientism, where people believe that they can take the scientific method and other practices and put that into politics and literally create um, by fiat or by dictate a world where a lot of these problems are solved. And really, if you look at like communism and fascism, both Karl Marx and Mussolini, they all believe in that science reason progress uh, narrative, they all believe in modernity, and their attempts to try to impose from the top down this progressive vision of this utopian world. And so what we have with that in the 20th century is we have the complete breakdown of of the Enlightenment project and a lot of it's the the century of authoritarianism. So you have World War I, you have the rise of Nazi Germany, you have the rise of communism, you have the rise of all of these massive governments and the deaths of millions and millions of people all predicated on these ideas that ultimately derive from the Enlightenment of objective and objective science and then inevitable progress. And I think that those have led to a lot of problems in society. So I understand the Christian nationalists say that people want to uh, that you know, I guess that that the foundations of the Western world are somehow eroding, and that maybe it's because liberalism failed. But in my opinion, it's not that liberalism failed; it's that people put too much faith in objective knowledge and in an objective science, and that led to all sorts of massively disastrous consequences during the 20th century, and a lot of the social dislocations that we see today are the long-term results of those policies. And as libertarians, I mean, we go back to the establishment of the Federal Reserve, which is just a central control over the United States currency, the non-stop U.S. warfare state since World War II, which has destroyed the lives of millions of people around the world. And then, of course, the welfare state, which has hollowed out private charity and made it almost impossible for the average person to afford to live uh, the kind of life that they should be able to live in a free market society. And this is like this classic example of people blaming uh, people blaming the free market and people blaming capitalism and people blaming liberalism on all of the consequences of these authoritarian political policies.
0: Right, yeah, and and authoritarianism is is also anti liberal, right? Hmm. And so, essentially, yes. what what's happened is we we've we've developed this aristocratic class, um, which says, you know, well, you know, we know, okay, yeah, you know, the old aristocrats and the old kings, they didn't know what they were doing because they were, you know, Christian or whatever, but we know, you know, we know how to do this, you know, we we we, we believe the science, and we're <laughs> we're in a, a good position to rule, uh, you know, we're smart, we know what we're doing. And so in that sense, what the Christian nationalists are actually wanting to do is a return to that. I mean, so th- th- that's the part of the, uh, the liberal tradition in particular. I think that is perhaps perhaps the most important, um, which which I think they blame for their problems, but they also want to keep doing it. Right. And so essentially it becomes this thing where they want to take uh, you know the worst part of this kind of reaction to the Enlightenment which sort of pretends to be, or, 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 or um, or, or to, we'll say to liberalism, which pretends to be liberal, but isn't really. um, And, and they want to keep that going. Um, And, but they just want to be in charge of it. Right. Right. Um, You know, we, we, you know, we don't want, um, you know, uh, you know, Fauci or, or, you know, Vladimir Lenin in charge of it. We want, you know, Doug Wilson. Uh, I'm sure it'd be much better. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, we also have, I mean, I think I, maybe I kind of seized on this a little bit with the reference to Lenin and the, uh, um, you know, the, the elite managers or whatever. Um, but it seems to me that the Christian nationalists do have these kind of bedfellows on the other side of the, the horseshoe. If, if, if about how politics is a horseshoe and at the extremes they get they become almost the same again. Yes. Um, and so that would be ultra progressive socialists and Marxists who also say that liberalism has failed. Uh, because of you know landlords and nine to five jobs still existing, um, and uh, and incidentally they think they should be in charge of it. Liberalism has failed. We need to go back to some kind of authoritarianism. And hey, guess who should be in charge? We should. Um, so, and, so what is it that people on the left are failing to understand about the liberal tradition? And, and what do they also fail to understand about the left-wing authoritarianism that they're trying to, to bring into existence?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the critique that we made about the Christian nationalist right is almost the exact same critique that we can make about the progressive uh, movement as well. And in a lot of ways, like the first like progressives were Christian post-millennialists but that believe that in order for Jesus to come back, we had to establish this millennial reign on earth. And a lot of those ideas are deeply embedded in the Enlightenment as well. And I think one of the things that I would point to is that, the Enlightenment. We have this, like, we have this sense that the Enlightenment was like perfect. That the Enlightenment got everything right, but it was a mixed bag, like every other movement in history. And I think that what we should be able to derive from liberalism is that freedom and free markets and free speech and free expression. Those are really the ideas that drove human progress after the 17th century. Those ideas are the ones that are the most important. It's this almost, almost um, theological or eschatological belief in the power of objective knowledge and objective reason that has really caused all of these problems. So we can say that the Enlightenment might have gotten government right, or at least the Enlightenment took the, the took steps in the right direction to help us understand and think about the way that governments ought to best be organized, but they dramatically overestimated the ability of human beings to make objective decisions, and that that leads to a lot of these problems today. And what's really ironic about the progressive left right now is that they all claim to be postmodernists, like they all claim to be critical of this modernist project, but in reality, they believe in objective knowledge much more than their conservative counterparts. They believe in objective facts that just kind of exist out there, such as power dynamics and race, like all of those things that they claim to believe are objective. And then they also have this idea of the technocratic state, that if you only have the right people in power, and they're the experts, they're the smart people, they're those with PhDs from the Ivy Ivy League University, that we can retool society in order to make it more per and to solve all of our problems. And this is just, in a lot of ways, what the progressives are doing in the United States right now is just a return to the 20th century. Like, like top-down authoritarianism did not work in the 20th century, and it never will work. And if you want to know why, you can read Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, which is a brutal takedown of central planning. I mean, the whole idea behind that is that human beings just don't have enough knowledge. Like, human beings are imperfect, they're deeply subjective, and there's no reason why we should give central authorities that much power, because they're almost always going to get it wrong. And what's amazing about The Road to Serfdom is that high writes it right at the end of world war ii and he exactly predicted what was going to happen throughout the rest of the 20th century which is just a century of utter bloodshed for most people throughout uh the human race and I, th- I think the progressive left still holds on to this false belief in objective knowledge and in technocracy that's been demonstrably proven false by human history especially over the last 50 years but again a lot of a lot of people on the progressive left would say that learning and reason and all of that kind of stuff is racist or a product of white uh whatever I, you know, you know how it goes. So those are lessons that they ought to learn. But in a lot of ways, it's like you said, there's really no, the only difference between Christian nationalism and progressivism are philosophical. It's the same political authoritarianism, just in a different garb, in the exact same way that there's really no difference between fascism and Marxism. They result in the same kind of political policies and the same kind of pain and suffering. The only real difference is philosophical. And I think unless people fully appreciate that, we're never going to be able to get out of the cycle because you're going to, you're going you're gonna to become a fascist Christian nationalist in response to a bunch of communist, uh, atheist, progressives. Well, y- again, you're going to you're going to you're going to wind up creating the same set of problems, and then there'll only be another more violent reaction later on down the road. That's the history of the 20th century, and I think that we've not learned our history well.
0: Yeah, and, and you'd think you know we, we've had we'll, we'll say 1,500 years uh, to see what you know to realize that you know Christian authoritarianism doesn't really work either. Yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> right
0: and and um yeah it, it's it, it's interesting that we keep going back to that it's always you know th- 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 there's been this kind of rejection of of uh, liberalism or libertarianism of of um of freedom on, ultimately um because it's like well you know we have to fight fire with fire and as long as we're in charge it's going to be okay and it doesn't work out that way it, it it never works out that way and yeah i i i i i think to me this is really, I think, the central political question that we need to we need to like, I think, you know, resolve finally, which is this, you know, was liberalism a good idea? Is liberty, is freedom a good thing? And, and, I, and I think, yes, it absolutely is. And so these efforts to, um, you know, to centralize power, to create a more authoritarian state, but just put a, a Christian or Marxist or whatever veneer on it um you know at, at the end of the day it's it's just an attempt to protect one group's uh prerogatives for power yes. it doesn't it doesn't really help anybody other than the, the few people that are that are going to benefit from it it's not going to help the people who call themselves christian nationalists for the most part even if it succeeded apart from the handful of people who are going to get into the inner circle yes. and and so that 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 sort of power dynamic um is yeah, I was listening to um, uh, one of the reason, recent interviews with uh, Nick Gillespie, um, and he, uh, he did one with um, Jonah Goldberg, who I mentioned, who's yeah. a conservative thinker, but but one who I think is is, is an interesting guy and worth listening yeah. to. Um, but, but he referred to um, a kind of critical race theory version of that on the right, which he calls critical Trump theory, <laughs> which is um, a- any time uh, the laws after Trump, um, it's you know Trump didn't do anything wrong, he's oppressed or yeah. whatever, right? And so it's, it's sort of the same thing as, you know, anytime a black person is in jail or or being pulled over by the police, it's because of racism. Um, But we, but the thing is we tell ourselves these stories about why, uh, you know, we should be in charge, why we're oppressed. And anyway, so it's, um, but yeah, so it's, 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 we we need to move past that. We need to move past this sort of um, the sense of, I have to protect the prerogatives of my tribe which ultimately just means the handful of people who can make it to the top in my tribe. Um, But it's like a go team thing. Right. Um, And and we need to kind of get to a point where we're asking the questions about what is it that leads to human flourishing? What is it that's going to benefit the most people? And, and the answer I think to that politically is, is, is what we call liberalism or freedom. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I completely agree with that.
0: Yeah. So, well, we've been about an hour here. We should probably wrap up. Um, uh, maybe just one quick question. They say that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat its mistakes. As a history teacher, uh, what do you say to those who don't see the value of freedom, liberalism in this classical sense?
1: I just think that people that don't understand how valuable that is don't understand history. And I feel really bad for I feel really bad for Americans because our public school system has done a horrible job of teaching them history. Uh, and again, you know, you got to think about it like we have a public school system in the United States. So obviously, the way that history is going to be taught is going to be designed to reinforce the fact that we have all of these public systems. And so a lot of people graduate high school without having any real knowledge of of history or economics or anything like that and the reason why we're facing a lot of these problems today is that we have no uh, philosophical or historical or economic framework for thinking about these issues and so we just go about uh, we just go about accepting whatever it is we're told to think about how to best resolve these problems I really do believe that it's incumbent upon everyone that wants to take this seriously to read as much as they possibly can to learn as much as they possibly can and to think as much as they possibly can anyone that thinks that either Christian national or progressivism are the answers to our problems, need to go back and read about what happened in Europe between the Protestant Reformation and the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, or go back and read about what happened in Russia or China, or even in the United States with the war on terror in the last 150 years. Like there are so many great examples from history of how liberalism and freedom and free markets actually work. But people tend to blame that on problems that are caused by state intervention, and that are caused by power being uh, given to the wrong kinds of people. And so we just have to understand how these things work. And I know for me, like for a long time, I was a Christian and I I was, I didn't know anything about libertarianism for years and years uh, by being a Christian, but I, I had just these deeply libertarian sentiments inside of me because I had been reading the Bible. And I just realized that like, you have to, you have to preach the gospel and people have to voluntarily accept it. You can't force that belief onto other people. And that was the foundation of my libertarianism. But I was like everyone else. Like I, you know, I graduated from the public schools, went to college, And I was one of those people that thought, yeah, Jesus was probably a socialist because he wanted us to be generous. And yeah, maybe we need to go and fight the Muslims in the Middle East because they hate our freedom and all that kind of stuff. You just accepted that because you didn't know any better. But then once I started studying economics and once I started studying American history, and then really once I became a teacher and really dove into the Middle Ages, it just completely changes your perspective on the world. And you'll never see things the same way again. So if, if you don't understand history and you don't know history, and then of course, with history, you have to have a little bit of philosophy and you have to have a little bit of economics to really contextualize what it is you're reading, you're just never going to understand the world around you. And we desperately need more people that understand what is going on and are, are willing to critique it based on real historical knowledge. Because at the end of the day, we could be living in a world where we could have eradicated a lot of the problems that were addressed during the Enlightenment. And because of the overestimation and human power, we've not been able to do that.
0: All right, Alex uh, Bernardo. Thank you so much for taking time to uh, be here to talk with me about this. And uh, I, I wish you, I wish you luck in your future endeavors, both in your uh, your day job and uh, and your moonlighting. Job. Hey, I appreciate you. Thank you. you.
1: That sweet,
0: thank Uber you. Great time. Have him going. Leave that super
1: breeze, riding his hotel Uber, 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 she- Uber, Uber. Uber.